the last song I remember playing over and over and over again when I first heard it was... Um, It's called Earth Blues by Jimi Hendrix. It's on one of those Hendrix. Re- yeah, one of those re-release yeah. albums that not re-release, <laughs> but where they just dig into the the vaults and they just pull out stuff that you know the hundreds of things he recorded and never released. So that was uh, that that that's an amazing yeah. song. I listened to that constantly Sep- when I Sep- first heard it. Uh, do you know? Do you know, Greg? I mean, uh, yeah. September the eighteenth, nineteen seventy, died. And me and my friend, we went up on the bank where we used to go skywatching. We went up on the top there and we just sat there and we blubbed really just, you know, it was, it seemed like a real big end of everything for me, you know. Hmm. Um, one of my favorites is Hear My Trainer Come In. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hear My Trainer, Hear My Trainer Come. Do you know, Eddie Kramer has some crazy guitar in it. He he sings with his guitar. Yeah. And, it, and it's very bluesy, that is. You know, like Johnny Winter copped that off him. Um, he's yeah. another one that I really love, you know. But Eddie Kramer, when he recorded him at Electric Ladyland Studios, he had he said, because I met him in a studio once in London, and I didn't know who he was. And, uh, and he somebody introduced me and said, this is Eddie Kramer. And I, I, the name didn't ring a bell or whatever. And he got talking to one of the other guys about how many, you know, how many you know, whole rooms full of tapes that he'd recorded, jam sessions with everybody, you know, and that never got looked at. That He was the greatest, you know, a lot of people got, mm, what was so great about Hendrix? If you lived when Hendrix was around, yeah, you know, like we had the conversation the other night, you get Hendrix alongside Fleetwood Mac, alongside some comic song, alongside, the diversity was just incredible. Uh-huh. Right. I'll shut up and you can start the show. How's that? Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll probably use the um, the uh, anti-ETH intro, maybe. That's the normal one of I'm using. Of course. Yeah, well, of course. So <laughs> let, let me turn it up. Uh, turn my mic down so it doesn't echo, but I'm going to keep the speakers up so you guys can hear it. Otherwise, it just goes silent for a little while. It's confusing. So um, here we go. Wow, it went back to Hendrix. <laughs> That'll do. That's an omen. Yeah, yeah. There it is. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information. 
and the fact that they can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? I think I'm fading that out okay. Can you, can, can you guys both hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. loud and clear, yeah. Oh, excellent. Uh, Five it, by nine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to call my drone company <laughs> that for a while. <laughs> we are here on Sunday, July 15th of 2018 uh, with a new guest who I think has not been a guest on any show. Um, this is somebody that Miguel got in touch with. Charles, is your last name Topham? It certainly is, yeah. Topham, wow, yeah. I can't remember. I can't believe I remembered that because I think you've mentioned it to me once. And then, well, it's not. It's not a rock and roll name, is it? <laughs> it, yeah, it could be if you were a, a, a British invasion guy. Do you but know? Again, do you really want to know a quick one? The guy who started the Yardbirds was was called Top Topham Anthony Tony Topham, <laughs> and we were the only two in the, the London telephone directory for a long time. So you used to get calls for him, right? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, my my wife, uh, her last name is um, is Hudson, and her so in the phone book she was S Hudson, and that's um, oh, who's the guitarist from Guns N' Roses? Um, damn it, I can't remember his Slash. name. Slash. Yeah, it's Slash's real yeah. name is is um, uh, something Hudson Stuart Hudson. I can't remember, but it, in the phone book it said S Hudson. So she keep get, kept getting calls from Guns N' Roses fans from all over the world, <laughs> and she and she recorded them. She kept the recordings, and she said these two Swedish girls used to call all the time and say, "Oh, Slash, you're a hero. We won't tell anybody. Please call us back. Oh, Slash, you're a god." Blah, blah, blah. And some guy called from Canada all the time. It's like, "Oh, dude, I found your number. I, I won't tell anybody. Uh, just, just just call me back, Slash, dude. You're like the greatest." So she had a bunch of those recordings. I would have made an entire, you know, recording out of that and, and, and sell it. Yeah, well, she still, she made the recording, 
but she doesn't know where the damn thing is anymore. She she lost track oh. of it. Maybe when we move, she'll find it. But yeah, she she played the recording for me once. I was doubled over. It's one of those things that should be just on the <laughs> internet with its own site, you know? Calls to yeah. slash. <laughs> yeah, oh, the slash that never was. We yeah. can make down an animation or something out of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Charles has not been on a show before, and um, Miguel, uh, he contacted Miguel, and Miguel contacted me about his project, or a past project, which was fascinating to me. Maybe you and uh, maybe Charles, and uh, and welcome, Charles. Thank you. Thank you for being on. No, thank you. Thank you. I've listened to this for a long time, you know. And... Um, Okay, actually, I'll ask Miguel. You know, what? How did you hear about Charles? How did this start? And what interested you in his um, in in Charles' story in the first place? And then Charles can you know elaborate on it. Okay, good. Okay, we, uh, um, earlier this year, I guess it was in late February or something. I was asked by Gene Steinberg to be a guest for the podcast. You know, and and it was a, it, it was a good uh, conversation. Between myself, Gene, and Randall, so a guy, a, a yeah, guy Randall Murphy, yeah, Randall Murphy, who, unlike me, he, I guess he still holds a pretty nuts and boltsy opinion right, right. with regards to the UFO phenomenon, which I don't mind because you know, instead, it wasn't like a, a heated discussion or whatever. It was just uh, uh, a cordial conversation with between people who have a. Uh, different opinions about what UFOs may or may not be, which is fine because, you know, this world will be so boring if everybody agreed on everything. But anyway, I guess at some point of the discussion, I mentioned or proposed the idea, something that I've been thinking um, for quite a while, that what people call alien implants, you know, this this kind of like metallic or, or, or uh, small uh, things that they find embedded in their skin and they be- and people believe that they have been put there deliberately by, by alien beings for nefarious purposes, you know, either to, as a tracking system or as, a, as a, even a mind-controlled, uh, you know, device. I propose to Randall and, and Gene the idea that maybe these things were more akin to what in, what in religious studies is called a stigmata. You know, these people, these religious saints or mystics who uh, managed to have the, the wounds on their, on their hands and their feet, equating the wounds purportedly uh, suffered by Jesus Christ during his uh, uh, execution by the cross. So maybe uh, we should look at uh, alien implants as uh, a port. Oh, I see, a port. Does everybody know what an port is? Well, maybe we should try to give (laughs) a a very brief definition of what an port is. And and Charles, uh, please feel free to fill in whatever I I miss. But basically, an port is something that is uh, part of... uh, uh, parapsychology and spiritualist practices, mediumistic seances and such, in which during those sessions, material objects will appear 
seemingly out of nowhere, which uh, apparently were being uh, either transported or materialized by non-corporeal entities, according to, to whatever it is that the, that the members of the, of, the, of the group were asking for as a source of, of, of confirmation. And, you know, so apparently apports could be roughly divided between two categories. One is things that will be uh, brought up from other place, regardless of time and space. You know, in other words, it could be like a, pen, a, a very old pendant that maybe came from 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 another country or from another era. Maybe it would be something you know that is quite old. Or and, and other times, the apports or apports. I don't know which which one is the right uh, uh, pronunciation. Could be something that is materialized materialized then and there uh, by the non corporeal entity. In order to satisfy the wish or the demands of the member of the of, of the spiritualist session, will that be a a, a, fa, a a fair description of it, Charles? I'd say it was, to be honest. Apport, <clears throat> apport comes from apporta, which is Latin to bring. Um, if you if you very often if you Google apport, you'll find apporta because it's it's um, equipment people use for training gun dogs to bring. Um, Apport was used by the 19th century uh, growing spiritualist movement to describe this phenomenon, which happened often in um, a, a, a seance setting. And an asport, something is asported, it means it's taken away. Very often, um, in, in a lot of cases, if something arrives, it can be apparently quite unstable and it can disappear again within a short time. I think um, it's a, I think his name is Jeffrey Krippner. He, he's, he does an interview with um, Jeffrey Mishlove, I think, on uh, YouTube. I, I'm really struggling to remember. Stanley Krippner. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yes. That's, uh, yeah, that's right. And he talks about something being at a stable airport, basically. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I really i am not steeped in parapsychological um the buzzwords that they use i mean it seems to get more and more diluted as time goes by new words to invent this and that and the other and to be honest it doesn't explain anything any any simply it does to those people in that field because they need another language but an airport was very often seen i mean my when i was young my granddad was in the spiritualist church and when i was very young I saw somebody standing next to him, and I, and I said to him, you know, do you believe in ghosts? And he said, why? Why do you say that? And I described this woman which was standing next to him, and he said, well, that's my mum. And he explained about, you know, the spirits of the deceased staying around and watching over you and things like that. I mean, that was, that was something. He'd gone through the First World War. He'd, he'd gone through the Second World War. That was something they really believed in. They lost so many people, so many people, um, you know, ordinary folk that had lost somebody, describes seeing lost relatives and things like that. So the whole spiritualist movement was very strong. One of their core beliefs was that spirit watched over you. And, and if the conditions were right, then they would leave you a rose um, because that was their way of saying we're still here and we're, we're still in touch. And that happened, bearing in mind you've already set up the thought form for this, um, that happened so frequently 
I mean, I met old school spiritualists that used to meet, and this is the thing, they were very disciplined. They would meet religiously, no pun, every Wednesday or, or every Saturday for years and sit in an open circle developing their skills. And for physical phenomena to happen, they had the rapport, they had the trust in each other, um, good camaraderie as well, you know, um, and things did happen. But there were mediums who were physical mediums, they were called, and they are they are like the elite forces within mediumship, really. There used to be a whole tradition of these people, and they were well-known, they were studied quite closely, and what's interesting is that one medium doing physical phenomena might produce apports that were trinkets, small trinkets of no real value, but lots of them, and then some people were good at um, bringing through gemstones, other people brought through photographs, and you almost had your specialist thing. Uh, what we found with our setup was we had gemstones, and the form was set up by two groups before us. They got gemstones. We were the continuity group. We had gemstones afterwards. Yeah, but well, maybe yeah, you apports, should... Ap- okay, go ahead. I was going to say you should back up a little bit before you get into what your group did, because we, we haven't even yeah, talked uh, about we, that yet. We shouldn't get into the meat of, 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 of what we, you guys were doing in your group. Uh, uh, wanted to... Uh, before that, backgrounded try a bit. to to yeah right. to try to talk about your you know yeah, well, our, our early origins. Okay. Yeah. If I can just clarify one thing, if, yeah. For one, what, what I was told when I was young was that you had to be a spiritual person to have this happen, and and it was all the saints, it was all the yogis that produced these things. Tibetan lamas would have things yeah. happening around them. And I don't believe that anymore. I don't think you have to be spiritual at all because they happen yeah. every day. Yeah, one of the the, the most famous uh, Indian yogis in the world is a guy by the name of Sai Baba, mm. who used to uh, apport uh, this type of uh, uh, special ash that is called the booty. Yeah, yeah, mm. which is seems to to is believed to have uh, medicinal healing properties and all of that. But one thing that is important to point out is Sai Baba is an incredibly controversial figure. He's been accused by many people of, of uh, doing sexual abuses on, on his followers. So that's, it's kind of like uh, an, ir- an ir- ironic that someone who, who doesn't seem to be an exemplary individual, nevertheless, may be able to, to carry out these uh, incredible performances. But, okay, getting back to, to the idea of how we connected, mm-hmm. after, after that Paracas interview... I think it was, let me check here my email real quick, because I received a an, an, uh, forwarded uh, email from Greg Taylor. Greg Taylor is the owner and editor of, of the Daily Grail. And he forwarded me a message that he received on, on, on March 12, March 6th, sorry, of this year, written by Charles, because Charles wanted to uh, contact me, I guess, because he, he listened to that podcast interview and he was really particularly interested in the fact that I had uh, mentioned uh, the airports. So Charles, why, why did you feel uh, in, inclined to reach me at, at, at that moment? Oh, Why me? The stuff that happened with the old days happened a while ago and I, I've been in touch with a few people since and all of a sudden I woke up one day and I thought that was far more significant 
than I realized. Having had lots of other UFO experiences and things like this, I, the airports for me were like my big moment of with somebody opened the door, a big chink of light came through. You could see what was beyond it. It opened up the doors for a huge amount of things. And I'd written to a few people and said, look, you're talking about things that have materialized from nowhere. You're talking about UFOs. You're talking about the Fae. You're talking about all of these things. You know, airports are one of the things that are there. They come from nowhere. They're suddenly there. You can count them, photograph them. You can do spectrographic stuff. You can do all of those things. You can weigh them. You can do all the things that science asks of you. Um, you've got something in the palm of your hand which breaks every law of physics that we, we've basically understand so far and i've written to people and people are going yeah 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 what's that got to do with ufos what's that got to do with uh, anything you know and when you mentioned airports i thought at last somebody somebody has really you know recognized the significance and the mystery of them because it's a huge mystery when they appear and you don't forget it you know like i said to you guys uh, a couple of nights ago you never forget your first do you and it's one of those things, you know, and, and, and after that, everything else follows from that because you suddenly see that matter isn't just matter. It's, it's energy and it's both at the same time. Lots of little things, you know, that yeah. I, I'm sure people in the know with, with physicists and scientists will get into a huge debate about it. But I'm talking about from personal experience, hearing you talk about airports and s expressing some sense of the mystery of them was a huge. It was fantastic to me. Uh, one of the first questions I ask you, and let's get this out of the way, is when you're mm. sitting in the room doing what you were doing and getting these apports, how did the group, and we'll talk about the group, make sure that that uh, somebody wasn't just bringing these in or somebody was fooling you or whatever? That's the first normal skeptical question anybody asks. I liked your answer. You said, well, I didn't see you there, which I thought was a great answer <laughs> and answers a lot of questions. Um, but what, when people say that to you, do you, do you engage with them and tell them, look, you know, we, we had external, uh, uh, confirmation of things and we all trusted each other, all that. What's your answer? How can I put this? I would trust Angela, um, as my partner as was. I would trust her with my life and she is one of the most loving, honest people I've ever met. Her sister is exactly the same. The other guy, Martin. You know, Martin, again, I would trust Martin with anything that I threw his way, and he would do the utmost to help. With Graham, Graham came in, he knew a couple of us, but he didn't know all of us, and he saw, um, I mean, this, this goes back a little bit, but he saw some stuff that was going on and thought, wow, because he thought he'd made a break with his previous group. There was a sense of trust, there was a sense of, we hadn't done anything, nothing had happened then. You know, we, we just met and thought, yeah, let's let's do the board. Yeah, great idea. Come round. What night do you want to do it? Um, things that happen to us, you, there's some of them you could probably cast a little bit of doubt over and you could probably say, well, you know, this and on the one hand, this and on the other hand, something else, you know. But if you were there at that moment, I, I remember doing a talk at the Questing Conference in 1989 at the Conway Hall in Holborn in London and somebody sat there. And they got a bit of a group around them and they said, you know, uh, is it possible somebody could have done this and could have done that? And is it, you know, was the was the skylight open? And, you know, and I mean, really stupid things. You'd have to you'd, you'd the the explanation that they wanted was far more complicated than the fact that something had appeared, you know. Um, and and I, remember I said to this woman, I said, you know, it's funny you should say that because on those nights I said, you know, really frosty night outside. 
the, we were sitting around the table and we'd all got biscuits and a cup of tea and we'd done the Ouija board and, and um, I said it was quiet, the candles were on, there was incense going and I said, look around, there was Graham, there was Alan Martin, there was Ange. I said, I don't remember seeing you there. And there was places erupted because it's true. She wasn't there when it happened. And, and this is what gets me, you know. So many people, I mean, so many books are open to speculation on what happened and, um, with this group, that group, for everything from UFOs to Sasquatch and this, that, and the other. But the person in the hot seat who's there at that moment, it shakes their life up. Um, you, it doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, there are, there are fakers and everything. We didn't have that in our group. We had no vested interest in explaining it to other people. A lot of people didn't know what we were up to. That's probably best. You know, the, well, yeah. I mean, you know, there was a guy I used to work with. Uh, he was a member of the SPR, a uh, guy called Dave Blundy. And Dave, Dave was really interested in what we were doing. You know, I used to write up sheets about, you know, we had another airport last night. And when it really hot, you know, got hot, I would go in and, you know, like every other day and say, Dave, let me get a couple of airports and show them to him. And he'd just freak out because it's the same. If you have one UFO experience, people go, yeah, yes, this is this great, mate. You know, um, if you have two or three, people start looking at you like you're a nutter. If you have one airport, people go, wow, that's just incredible. And they, they dine out on it all the lives. Once you've had five, 10, 15, 20 airports, people just suspicious. You've got to be making stuff. Somebody faking it, this, that, and the other. You know, these things have a short run. Poltergeists have a short, you know, a lifespan. Um, we had a short lifespan, big, bright, and beautiful in what we did. You know, the fire that burns bright, blah, 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 whatever it yes. is. You know, we used, we used up all the chi in the house. We used up all the spare chi within ourselves. Things had run down. Physically, we all got a bit knackered at the end of it. And something told us to stop doing it. Some external force, exactly like the skull experiment, stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, let's back you know, up to, a little bit, maybe. And, yeah, we need, yeah mm. we need to try to not to make this too much uh, inside baseball, you know, to try to clarify. We can uh, we can do more or, than one interview here, Charles. To, to get, yeah, I apologize. Business. I apologize. If you want to edit anything out, please. Oh do. no. Yeah, for example, just, uh, you know. a lot of names that will be have been mentioned that will be mentioned during this interview. For example, Graham. Graham is Graham Phillips, who yes. is a, a, a very famous <clears throat> English parapsychologist. He wrote a very popular book in the 1970s, The Green Stone. That is uh, uh, that it deals a lot with the, the, th- the themes and the topics that we are going to to talk during this uh, conversation. And the other person who was involved in all this is Andrew Collins, who wrote, wrote another book, who was the Seventh Sword. And yes. these guys, what's important about this is that they were the the ones who coined uh, a term that is probably not very familiar in, in, in people that are outside England. And that term is psychic questions. So now, mm. Charles, I would like you to try to define to the audience what psychic questioning is. In 1979, well, actually, it's, it's, it's even before that, Graham and Andy and Martin Keatman ran a magazine called Parasearch. And they started getting um, people coming up to them and saying, 
look, we, you know, we have the UFO sighting and this, that, and the other, but there's something else going on. It's not about UFOs. It's about a stone. And it kept building up. It's like it gathered its own energy. People out of the blue would come up to them and say, I've got a message for you, and it's quite important. You've got to go here. You've got to go there. It's, quite, it's building up. It's really big. Guard yourselves. Cover your and, back. And these were UFO et cetera, et cetera. witnesses, a lot of them. They were very much. It started off with that. It started off with Gaynor seeing something, and the, and the Marion Sunderland's family. Um, you know, it's it's the old thing. I mean, don't forget, we're going back to the the seventies when an awful lot of stuff was still nuts and bolts. The idea that yeah. somebody could see a UFO that wasn't there and see people as well and everything that hadn't really kicked off. Even though Keel was there with the ultra terrestrials, it was still nuts and bolts. And Bufora. Like Mufon are still doing, they lined up to show you the different sorts of craft and defined scout craft, Vimina and all the other stuff, cigar-shaped mother craft. That was still the norm. That was still the paradigm. That was still the Bible that people stuck to. Mm-hmm. So when they started coming up with all this psychic stuff, and it got, it just took a completely different turn, and it became parapsychology, I suppose, in a way. The uh, term psychic questing. Mm-hmm. Sorry, sorry. Let me jump in. Uh, you, yep. you mentioned uh, Gaynor and, and Marion yeah. Sunderland. And here, uh, it's important to co- point out that the reason why Marion got to uh, contact Graham and, and, and Andy is because the two of them went to a, a UFO conference, I think it was yeah. in London, and yeah. that's when they met uh, Marion, who was a, a housewife. I think he, he lived in, in, in Liverpool or some, somewhere. Yeah, North Wales. Yeah, North Wales. Okay, thanks. And, and she talked about uh, these uh, UFO sightings that were happening to her daughter, Gaynor, who was, I think he was, she was 12 years old. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, very young. So, yeah. so they went to investigate, and apparently out of that investigation, they actually took a photograph uh, uh, to, uh, of the place where Gaynor claimed that she saw uh, an object. Yeah. So... Graham took a photograph, and the, when they revealed the photo, something appeared in the photo that was that wasn't seen by none of them. When they know, developed some, it, some, yeah. When they developed it, yeah. But more importantly, it seems that after that, and this is what really was interesting to me, is after that, Graham himself, who had never claimed to have any psychic abilities whatsoever, oh, yeah. began to develop psychic abilities and began to, to, to receive uh, bouts of precognition and all that. And that's also when they started to receive all these phone calls from Marion and from other friends of theirs who were also psychic, telling them about uh, things that they had to go and find in, in, in certain locations uh, of the English, English countryside. Am I, am I correct, uh, Charles? Oh, yeah, very much so, very much so. Okay, so please go that on. Whole, that whole thing about, um, I mean, I, I, can be, I can be honest about my own stuff. When I, when I look back, the, the key point was when I was eight years old, I looked out over where I was living um, as a kid, and over a hill, which is um, the Forestry Commission, there was a, a Victorian folly. And above that folly, there was a, like a, a, a cloud just on its own. And something came out of it. And it moved laterally. And it was like a saucer shape. But it was like a seed, really. If you can imagine a seed um, 
with a line through it. And it stayed, it was really bright and shiny, and it went back into this thing. And I had no idea what it was. I mean, you're going back a long time. And, um, and I asked my dad, and, and he said, well, I don't know what it was. I asked my granddad, who was the font of all knowledge to me, and he, and he didn't know. And then that's when I saw, you know, it was after that that I saw my my granddad's mother standing next to him. And lots of things happened after that, you know. Um, mm. You know, if I suddenly finding myself on the roof, you know, not physically, but sitting there on the roof and, and watching people go by and, you know, I suppose you'd call it astral projection or something like that. Things like that kicked off. Um, but with Graham and Andy, the psychic questing thing, it was a term I feel was coined by Andy to explain that you use psychic information to go questing in the countryside and things. They found it. I mean, there's in the books that you have, um, it, it, this is, this is intriguing really in many ways. It is an English phenomena. I don't know of anybody else outside of the UK doing it. And it was all tied in with sacred sites in the landscape. It was tied in with a, like an English heritage thing. Um, you know, and, and the thing is a lot of stuff didn't, you know, on hindsight, a lot of it was, you suddenly presented with a story, lots of psychic information and you acted on it. That was the main thing. If you just took it in and went, oh, that's really great. You know, like some psychics will say, um, oh, I can see a crystal tree around you and big bright lights. And I can see a fairy floating around. That's no use to anybody <laughs> at all. You know what I mean? You might go just, you know, go take mescaline and walk into the desert for a fortnight. That will teach you more about yourself. You know, you need somebody who will give you hardcore information which checks out. And this is the one thing about Andy, the one thing about Graham. Um and certainly a woman called Jean, who was in the book, said Jean was not really psychic, but she was a brilliant researcher. Now, Andy is that. I mean, Andy can go through. The, he will spend weeks in the British Library checking stuff out. And Graham was the same. He would get intuitive hunches and follow it up with good research. Um, you need somebody who can do that. And sometimes the information just trails out or you get a hint that it might be right. And this is where you come into the information universe again. All of that stuff is out there. All of the things that happened and those that didn't quite happen. You know, the unwritten stories are out there, just like the, the ones that somebody bothered to write down, you know. Um, and they, they had, they just, I mean, the finding the sword, I've been to that site several times with Andy and, and the group. And, um, you know, and I know exactly where the stone came out where they found the sword. And I've handled that sword many times, you know, over like seven, eight years. And it, with the one with me and I had a full Mary on it. And, I, you know, it, it, I, it, is, it was such a privilege, an utter privilege, because I'd read the books, I'd read the magazines. I had everything that had been put out that I could get hold of. Um, and, and when I, you know, I, when I actually got to, to, to grips with this stuff, and it's, I've got to explain, I mean, the, the, the weirdest coincidence is that I actually got to meet Andy. A, because I was working, I, 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 excuse me if I go on about this, I was working in a bookshop in London called Mysteries, and we had lots of books, everything from pagan stuff, new age stuff, um, creative, visualization, creative visualization, crystals and all kinds. And it was quite a, it was everything crammed, it was like an Aladdin's cave, everything crammed in there. And a friend I met there, called Derek Thompson, who, who writes spy stories. I met Derek, and we, we just clicked straight away. He'd been doing Dion Fortune stuff for a long time. He was in a Kabbalistic group, very disciplined, very funny guy. And he knew 
uh, a woman called Melanie Taylor who introduced, and they both introduced me to Angela and it was meeting Ange, which was with the turning point for everything. If I hadn't met Ange, none of it would have happened. And I owe her everything in all of this. I know there's Andy and there's Graham and everything, but it's down to Ange. And Derek, ages later, when Ange and I got together under the same roof and we had the swords, which is probably coming along later. And it was Derek who introduced us to Andy because he'd been part of the Old Earth Mysteries group in Leon C in Essex. So there are so many little threads. If I ramble sometimes, it's because this great web of weird where everything is connected to everything else you know, you tug at one little bit. There's a saying in Shropshire, it's a Shropshire saying, you can't lift a blade of grass on Clun Castle without disturbing the orbit of a star because everything is connected. No, I, didn't, I just made that up. I paraphrased <laughs> the Bhagavad Gita, that's what I did. But I mean, okay, it, so, it was... One. So we, we, we're, we're uh, just trying to lay the ground here for, for, for the audience about uh, second questions. So the, these were people who were receiving psychic messages either by dreams... Or either by, you know, uh, some kind of clary audience or something like that, trans states or whatever. And they were asked to go to certain locations in the English lands landscape in order to find sacred spots or, or to retrieve, uh, objects of, uh, magical importance. And one of those objects was, uh, uh, a sword, right? The, the so-called. Yes. Meonia or Meonia sword. Yeah. I don't know if Meonia. you could uh, explain that to, to, to the audience because, yeah, here my fear is uh, we might, you know, start to talk about things that, and, 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 and the audience will lose us. So let's, let's go a bit slower here, more uh, point by point, and, and let's, uh, let's explain what the, the Meonia sword was and, and what was its importance. Okay. Uh, bear in mind, I wasn't part of that original group. Sure. I knew lots of them really well. Um, Graham in particular, uh, for quite a period, uh, Andy, you know, we would, and, and so, and, and Jean as well. And I met um, people that were involved with the second group, the IFI. So I, I, this is accumulated knowledge and, and from them really, the, if, if you read the books and there's enough online as well, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. if you go onto YouTube, you'd find Graham talking about the early days, but yeah, they found the sword. And it was, it was covered with a pitch. I mean, they arrived there at some really weird time of night. And they started what is essentially vandalizing the, the bridge to get this one particular stone out. Yeah, there, was worked it out. there was a bridge in some kind of like a small pool, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, Knight's Pool. Yeah, it's in Worcestershire. Uh -huh. And um, we, we, I mean, I, I guess I've been to the place. But when they were there, it was all overgrown. So they had to fight their way through the undergrowth and muddy water. And it was nine stones across nine down because of the nine worthies which which appears in the book it's one of the cl the clues they got they picked up clues all over the place yeah. you know there was there were places in the landscape where they felt this old magical order the order of the fire phoenix had left um psychic imprints and some of them had left guardians had, at sites as well questing yeah yes very much so yeah and and they got the sword out and uh, they 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 scampered pretty quickly and they put the, mm -hmm. the uh, stone back. Um, then, then they disappeared. And they, when they got into the light and looked at it, and they took the pitch off, it looked like it was new, because it it was protected. And it had, they they took it off, and they could see almost you know beautifully engraved. It's a lovely job, and it says Me and I are for Mary. And, okay, who um, put the sword there? Oh, blimey! This is really testing my memory. Um, it was hidden there by. 
somebody that was a member of the old Fire Phoenix group in the 1800s, okay. and it might okay. have been Mary Heath. I can't yeah, remember. All right, so so, so the Fire Phoenix group was a group of uh, magicians that mm. uh, existed in in Victorian times in the 19th yes. century, right? Yeah, and they worked out of Biddulph Grange. They worked out of Biddulph Grange. All right, in all right. And uh, for reasons that uh, we're not going to, you know, cover the whole story here, but for for some for reasons that were important for them, they felt the need to hide this sword uh, on that bridge. And then um, Graham and, and Andy, uh, following, you know, either Graham's uh, intuition. intuition and also. Yeah. Through, through through some also a scholarly work, you know, when they were finding the clues about these the nine worthies, it's a, it's a legend about nine uh, knights. You know, I think one of them was King Arthur, and the other one was uh, one of the Maccabean kings, uh, whatever. The other one was, I think, um, then Saint my, 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 George, Saint George, Saint George's Parry, Saint George's Parry, and they looked at the way the sword was pointing. Exactly. This is really this is this is going back so long. Do you know it's the fortieth anniversary next year of the Green Stone? And I, I spoke to Andy Collins uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he said there, there's a big going to be a big conference in Birmingham in the middle of England. Actually, you know, it's Nick Redfern's home ground. Yes. Um, and it's the fortieth anniversary, so the people that are left alive and things are going to get as many people together as they can. And it's funny because it's almost like a stand-up comedian. They go through this phase of where everybody wants to know them and it's all big and then it dies down. Other things come and go. And they get it to a certain age where all of a sudden they're fashionable again. Everybody wants to know and it's mixed in with nostalgia and things. And that's what's happening to this psychic questing. Is anybody Very doing so. it now? Apparently so. Now, this is what intrigues me. Some of the, I mean, I, I've had conversations with Richard Ward and, and Paul Weston, who are really well-versed. I... I, I implore you at some stage um, to talk to Paul Weston because the man writes beautifully he's a mine of information knowledge um, he's really bright, articulate and he was there for a lot of the lots of stuff with Andy You know, he's, he's a walking encyclopedia of what happened and he's had his own stuff but there weren't any young ones coming up, I mean I'm 65 now I remember having a conversation with Richard and he was, he was saying about where the young quest is coming from and I said I don't know you know, and we, we sort of exchanged how old we were and he said that's it you know. and, and you see lots of the old crowd have gone that Marion and people like that, um, these people from the old, the first original lot, they've gone, you know, the, the next lot down, uh, struggling. Some of them have died yeah. already, you know, they're, they're in very bad health. Okay. Um, but what I found really encouraging when I spoke to Andy recently and I had a phone call with him, first time in a while. And he was saying that, you know, he's, he's on writing the books on Gobeki Tepe at the moment and things like that. So Lowen knows where he comes from. He's really absorbed in this other stuff. And, um, and he was saying he, that there's going to be a movement on uh, social media within the next couple of months where new psychic questing activity will be appearing. And people will be, you know, approaching it from um, a YouTube thing, blogs and, and podcasts and stuff. And I, I am really excited. I am really excited. You know, it, it, it's, you know, it, for me, 
it, to say it was one of the biggest things in my life, what it did for me was open a door for me to see just how big the world was. You know, even after years of Tibetan Buddhism, having met some of the greatest lamas like Kala Rinpoche and Karmapa, the old Karmapa, and going to the Black Hat ceremony, meeting, you know, a, a, a meeting people like Krishnamurti in stupid circumstances. Um, lots of really strange experiences with this, that, and the other, and UFOs. The psychic questing, and in particular the group that we were going to talk about, I yeah. saw things happen right in front of my nose. And, you know, all that thing about seeing is believing. I was there. I saw it. And I didn't know what to believe. You just pushed into this one moment where there aren't enough words. You start laughing like a maniac because it seems to be the only way to express it. And it's funny. It's really funny. It made me laugh so much. Just having something appear underneath the table. Yeah. In, in the most absurd circumstances. Oh, go ahead, Miguel. Sorry, before jumping into to, uh, the group that you were involved in, Charles, you know, and, and talking about uh, the this, seance this meetings you have and which you, in which you contacted uh, an entity by the name of Adi, before going into that, I would like to jump back uh, to uh, your early childhood because you told me uh, a, a few really interesting anecdotes that happened to you when you were in school and you were uh, uh, playing around with a bunch of other uh, school kids with uh, an old uh, ham radio. Yeah, you see, uh, my, my, because of my grand, this comes back, okay, very, very short and brief, the chronological yeah. order is, my, my granddad was a Morse operator in the First World War. He taught Morse to other things. He was an engineer. In the Second World War, he had a lot to do with Bletchley, um, to do with listing out for spies and, you know, things like that. He, was, he could read commercial Morse, and he, he could read it so fast he had to write it down in shorthand. I grew up, there must be something in the DNA, obsessed with radios I, I i still am when i was at school i'd really got into the whole ufo thing i'd read books on adamski i was reading at a very early age and writing really well when i went to school i skipped a year because my english and everything else was so good my maths is appalling and it still is to this day but <laughs> i had i mean i seriously when I, when I was in school this this teacher stood up and he said i don't know why they call you topham they should call you bottom because you're useless boy I mean, you'd probably see something like that, wouldn't you, nowadays? You'd probably need therapy or PTSD or something, you know, <laughs> or a fucking counsellor for the next six years at something. You know. So anyway, I, I was really into this thing. I, I, I believed in the, the Adamski stuff. You know, why wouldn't they be here? Because, you know, we we gone to the moon and we were doing samples of, uh, you know, we're taking samples on the moon or whatever, all of those sort of things, you know. Um why wouldn't there be somebody from somewhere else that would come to sniff at us and have a look? You know, um, even our science teacher used to say things like, they're here, you know, very quietly, not in front of a class, we, we, two of us would be there, two or three, we'd say, they're coming over the poles because that's where the gravity is at its weakest. And we think, wow, he knows something, you know. <laughs> we were into the Daniel Fry stuff, the Chris, Chris, Daniel Crispin, um, Bathroom, bathroom, you know, bathroom, everything I could get my hands on. And the local librarian used to get them in by the, you know, the box load, and I would read them all. What year was this? Oh, blimey. I'd probably be about 13, possibly 14 at that time. Because I, I got called out of school. I told Miguel this, and the headmaster came for me one day, and I thought, this is, I've obviously done something really shitty. And the only reason the headmaster would ever approach you about anything was to give you a bollocking. And uh, he called me outside, and the local paper, 
Lots <laughs> of street advertisers wanted to do a, a thing on me, an interview about flying saucers and had I seen any and, uh, you know, and things like that. So I, I did my bit in my school trousers and my little blazer and stuff like that, you know. Um, so I'd, the one thing for me that really got me was George Hunt Williamson, the saucers speak, because I mean, he mixed UFOs and ham radio, and it was like the it was like the magic, the golden combination. That was like you know, the, everything was in there, and I thought, yeah, brilliant idea. And I got a few of my mates because we were we were all in the science. We used to spend so much time in the science lab. We used to knock around. We were the nerds before nerds were invented, you know. And, and we used to read loads of books. We used to build radios. We used to, you know, it was just great company. I still know those guys to this day, and. A huge matter of affection for them, you know. Um, they made more of their lives of their lives than I did, to be honest. <laughs> you know, they did the old working nine till five for forty years and stuff like that. But we, we I just brainwave one day, and I thought, ha, ah, because I uh, I knew about Ouija boards and spiritualism. I thought, and I, this George Hunt Williamson book came along. And I thought, ha, ah, clever idea here. So we got an inkwell, and because uh, the old desk still had uh, inkwells and on them and a. Uh, so we got the inkwell and we cut out the letters and we started doing the Ouija board. There's me, a guy called Mike Smith, John and Peter Clargus, they were watching and having a go. Um, a guy called Dave Owen used to sit around, another guy called Grand Dyke, he didn't want anything to do with it. Oh, it'll bring you bad luck, blah, 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 you know, gypsies curse and all that. And we, we started getting results pretty quickly. And uh, certainly with Mike Smith, Mike, Mike could do automatic writing, you know, two of us would do it. And I'd say, come on. It's it's writing where you are. You can see what you're seeing. You know, turn it around so I can see what's going. You would suddenly turn around. It would write backwards, whole paragraph sentences and everything. You know, he was really good. And um, we we started getting results, and it was talking about Solon, um, S O L O N, Melchizedek. I hadn't got a clue what that stuff was. You know, no idea. I mean, none of us read the Bible or anything that might have been interesting, you know, or referenced it. And I said to this thing, okay, we want to contact the space people. Something came through saying, blah, 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 we are this, that, and the other. And I thought, yeah, why not? Everybody said, oh, yeah, because it was part of the course. It's what happened. We'd read it in books. We'd heard other people talking about it. And I remember saying, can we see one of your craft can we see can we get some idea of what you look like and we were on the top floor in the geography room it was secondary modern six floors up overlooking some playing fields where the the battle of Maserfield, oswald street battle had been king oswald died um on that battlefield you know hundreds of years before and there were cloud cover and all of a sudden this light dropped about the size of a football dropped out of that class and went right back into them and and there was everybody said, what? Because <laughs> we didn't swear in those days. Did anybody see that? And there was this, yeah. And we just, we packed it all up, pretended it hadn't happened, and we walked away from it. But we couldn't leave it alone. We, we had another go. And there used to be, we used to wait for the end of classes and lunchtime and after school so we could go up back up into the geography room or the science lab or something and do the Ouija board. And um, what intrigued me was, having read the Williamson books, one night, um, I I was I, I was babysitting. But I mean, God knows what they do to you for doing this now. But I was babysitting some kids a few doors down from me. But it was I was fourteen, fifteen, or something. I don't know what it was. And um, 
I used to do it on a regular basis. It was really good money. They used to put food in the fridge. And I said to my mate, I said, look, I'm babysitting tonight. Let's do the Ouija board around at their place and see. We yeah, yeah. So three of us all doing the kids were upstairs asleep. <laughs> God forbid they've ever listened to this. And um, we did the board. And I said, look, can you put some Morse code on the radio? Because that's what had happened in the George Hunt Williamson book. And I said, what I, and, and they said, yes. And I said, okay, what I want is da did it, which was D. And there was this pause, and it said, check. And I, and I said, what do you mean, check? Check again. So I said, da did it. And there was this moment's pause. And all of a sudden, a noise on the radio, it suddenly went, lots of white noise. And there was this very clear, da did it, da did it. And it was sounded like mechanical moors, like commercial moors. Da did it. It didn't sound like somebody on a key. Yeah. Um, and and the touch. yeah, very much so. My granddad said that you could always everybody's Morse everybody's hand. You could tell them it was like a signature, because um, when you were listening out for spies in Europe, you could tell what was what. But you'd hear somebody that was your own man very often. You'd you'd know his own, you know, hand Morse hand, and and that 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 sort of thing happened because I and the other thing was I I had a Saturday job working for a guy. Bear in mind we'd gone sky watching. We'd, we'd gone up on this really big hill outside of Oswald Street and the three of us had come down on these old bone shaker bikes and they'd gone home on time and my dad was waiting for me saying, where the bloody hell have you been? Do you know what time it is? And like something like an hour or something had gone missing, an hour and a half. And uh, the other guys had got home on time and I hadn't. And I don't remember anything other than I was still on my bike and I was scooting down this one in three hill for a mile or so. And... Um, we used to go sky watching. We had lights in the sky that would perform, it would stop and then flash and then move on and flash and then move back again and flash and suddenly go boom, vertically gone. And when I had my Saturday job, the guy I worked for, who was my um, top boss, a guy called Eddie Reed, he was G6 US, Golf 6 Uniform Sierra, and he was old time radio amateur, built all his own stuff, Eastern Micro. Um, you know, he used to do like really tiny little transmitters and receivers with semiconductors that people weren't really doing much with at the time. Um, he was very kind, very generous to me. He would, you know, he would give me a huge amount of components and, you know, to build stuff. And I would say, look, there's this book and I'm reading. It's about UFOs and flying saucers and they've got a contact. They're talking about impulse transmitting and, uh, and Klystrons and all these other things. You know, can you, can you tell? Oh, he said, oh, yeah, Klystron. I'll show you one. And it was like a, a microwave, um, like a horn, which resonated at a particular frequency. You create a waveform in it. And, um, and he said the, the other thing, you know, he explained it basically. It's like putting a, almost like a precursor to data transmission where you just put a signal and you pulse it and you pulse it. And um, there's gaps in between. But, you know, all of these things, um, he could confirm to me that, yeah, actually, that's, that's pretty consistent. Yeah, we know about that. And, you know, I, that's what amateurs use. They were just beginning to do moon bounce using, you know, UHF, VHF, UHF to bounce signals off the moon. Um, they had a particular wave, you know, a band which is allocated for that. So he confirmed all of this stuff. And coming back to the transistor radio, we sat there and I said, okay, can you do some more? And they said, yes, check. So I said, da did it, did da, da did it, which is dad in, uh, you know, and it just came up. And it, you know, we, and I, and I thought, Jesus, it's not on just on one frequency. The reason it's so loud, it's wiped out the complete radio. And I tuned around on medium wave, um, which, which is your AM and long wave. And it had, um, 
like a shortwave band, one shortwave band for the trawlers that used to be. And it just it was on everything. It was almost as if it had got to the IF, the inter, you know intermediate frequency on the, the thing. You know, it completely wiped it. So I mean, I mean, we we and the other thing to to conclude the UFO stuff in school was that, and this is where this is where it really. This was really, really shook me, and I started. I stopped playing with it after that, and I'm very reticent to play with it since. Um, I, I, I'd been at work all day, and I had this really, uh, really quite an oppressive feeling that I should go upon Shelf Bank, which is where we used to do the sky watching. You've got to go that night. This, you will see something. You will go upon Shelf Bank. Now, what intrigued me was one of the guys, Graham, uh, used to live down the corner from me. He'd been working on a Saturday, and he came to me. I was going down to his house to say, we've got to go up on Shelf Bank. He was coming up to see me, saying, we've got to go up there tonight. So we went up there, and we, we had a great display. There were two, there was a big dipper, and I can still see the formation of it. I can still see the sky, crystal clear sky. And a light came up from the Shropshire Plain vertically, and it went up to where the big dipper was. And it traced out the big dipper in where the stars are, and mentally you connect them up to make it look like something, it stopped, and then it would flash, then it would go to the next one, and the next one. So what we saw was it showing us the Big Dipper. And and I thought, yes, you know. Um, and I started, to, this is amazing, but we never saw anything close up. We never saw a craft. We never saw any a big light in the sky, which did this thing. And there was a feel, a real sense of being watched and being welcomed. Do you know that? There was an overriding feeling of being welcome. And, and, and when I got home, uh, I had to go and share my brother's bedroom, my youngest brother's bedroom. And um, I lay there on, on the bed and I looked through the window because it said, you will see us. It said, you will see us. And I thought, well, all we've seen so far is this light in the sky. And, do you know, I can still picture it through the curtains. There was this big triangle a black triangle with light at each corner and it came it came from being two-dimensional which was a line on its side you could see a complete equilateral triangle with the lights on it and it just faded away and do you know that really i can't tell you the experience i had with that because it unnerved me totally and i really thought i was going mental i really thought i was having a breakdown i really thought something had got seriously wrong with what i was into because you know we we all we the nuts and bolts craft nobody'd seen the triangle i'd never heard of a triangle you know it was one of those things that um it it disappeared and and um then somebody handed me not that long after a john keel book and he talked about ultraterrestrials and things appearing from other dimensions and and really, I didn't want to. I didn't really like the ultra-terrestrial thing at all. So I stayed away from it for a long time. There was an, after, another aspect of the story, right? About um, you guys receiving uh, in Morse code uh, a name, a word that is very relevant in in ufological studies, ufological lore, particularly in, in the stuff that Jacques Vallée has has researched. Yeah, it was the Melchizedek. Yeah. Can yes, you, can you yes, talk yes. about that, please? Well, I, but you see, the thing is, we, we got the name Solon, S-O-L-O-N, and um, it kept saying, why don't you come and join us? Why don't you come and see where we are? And we thought, yeah. And I said, what, what is, you know, who, to who, whom are we talking to? You know, to whom are we talking? And it said Melchizedek. And I thought, 
No, doesn't mean anything. I mean, it really it didn't mean anything to me then. And I'll be really honest. I think um, I've asked a few people, does that name ring any bells to you? Does it mean anything? Because it's not something I, I'm, I understand now, because after our conversation, I thought, well, you know, I, I, how can I put it? It's only like years later, like decades later. It's occurred to me that there might have been something else going on, but I don't think it was good. I don't think it was. Um, I think it was really. I think it really was ultra terrestrial, to be honest. Okay, um, okay but then, then we, we, can we have to clarify this uh, reception of the of the name or word Melchizedek was before Jacques Vallée wrote his book Messengers of Deception. Right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm talking. I, I, I'd be. If I was 15, I'd be very surprised because when I saw the, when I saw the 14, and nobody 15, knows how, how old you are, Charles. So please tell us. I'm, six, I'm 65 in September. Okay. I'm yeah. 65 in September. Okay. The the uh, beginning of the show, we were talking about psychic questing in your group, and I'd kind of like to get back to that. How the group formed, the idea you had when you formed the group, what might be happening, and maybe guide us through that a little bit because that that's the story that originally hooked me when um, Miguel contacted me and said that uh, Charles has something interesting to say. It's easier to remember as well because it it wasn't as long as ago as school days. Um, (laughs) Yeah, the the, the group, I mean, the group was fantastic really because it happened as spontaneously as anything could happen. You know, because uh, Ange knew Jean, who was a member of the IFI group. They'd known each other. They used to go to sacred sites and things like that. They used to do dowsing. I mean, that's how they used to go out with Paul Devereaux and at the roll rights and things and do work there with dowsing rods and things, you know. Um, so they were well in with Paul Devereaux. I met him through them. Um, they, they used to go out different places. They used to go and hear Graham and Martin Keatman talking to groups of people about what was going on. Um, then, Anne, who is Angela's sister, she was doing some hypnosis with Graham because he, he's a good hypnotist. And Martin, who was, uh, was was learning from Graham as well. So they were doing all of this stuff. And again, quite interesting results. You know, Graham would hypnotize one of them and say, right, go in remote view, so-and-so, so-and-so, what do you get? And we all suddenly thought, wow, you know, because we're living in this really old house, which, which was a which originally went back to the doomsday and it had Tudor paneling, Elizabethan chimneys. It had six, you know, rooms that were tacked on in the 1600s. It was an incredible place. It was like a rabbit warren. And the, it was just how we found that was just, you know, you talk about all the synchronicities. And one of the things was that we were living in this old place. We were all into the psyche stuff. We'd all done the Ouija board to say the least, you know, um, we'd all come from a, a basically a spiritualist, um, a background we we I, i'd come from a lot of tibetan buddhism and um some wicker and stuff like that Ange was tarot reading doing runes and she, you know they'd all got some idea what it was like to sit down quietly and meditate and we and and there was one day they said yeah let's all get together and do the board let's come do the ouija board yeah that'd be fam you know so it happened and the first few times we didn't get many results we didn't really get results you know it was working it was going but the fun we had, the laughter we had, and we'd swap stories with Graham and say, come on, tell us about the Greenstone, tell us about the Iron Fire, tell us about things, you know. And we would all swap stories about things that had happened to us. And it was, it was just fantastic. It was, you know, um, it, it was, and, and then we started getting results with the board, and that just kicked everything off. 
Um, How long did we, that we, take? You know, we, we, not long. A few <laughs> not weeks. Long at all. You see, uh, weeks, yeah, weeks. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the strange thing is that, I, I mean, looking back now, I can't quite remember the initial order of things, but we'd had the tooth, which you know about. So that, was, um, that was what kicked off Andy's thing when he was with uh, Marion Sunderland. And um, the tooth, as he put it, exploded, you know, and it came off the shelf. Well, that's the first Apport that happened and that was next to my overalls one morning and it was a herbivore apparently and we didn't you know i mean that was baffled us but because we thought you you'll have yeah, to explain thought, some of these things because you explained them to me but uh there's people listening so ah good point okay i was i was working for Margaret when i went to live with angela um um we we got together she found corley hall and she said to the land landlord landlady um my partner will be coming to join me you okay about that yes it's fine you know whatever so i went there and i didn't have a job and i started working for martin uh, who was angela uh, angie's um long-term family friend and stuff like that and um we we started doing stuff my overalls were on the floor one morning and and um i dumped them i went into the shower when i came back out there was a tooth right next to the overalls now bear in mind i there was nothing on that floor at all nothing on that floor i got changed dumped my overalls i knew what i you see that's the thing an airport always appears when you're not looking when you know that it wasn't there before because you know it will always do that and i'd say in 99.99999 cases it will do that and the phenomenon doesn't like to be noted. It doesn't like to be seen. Although it likes the attention, it doesn't like to, nobody. It doesn't like people knowing how it appears. Because I think if you understood how these things man, are made, manufactured, or appear, you'd have your hold on on physics, and you could do you could weaponize it. And I don't think it's about that. I think it's a conscious thing. The tooth was the first thing to be found, and we thought, wow. Then we found two swords, which was a whole, just another story which would take too long. We found two swords identical to the first sword that was found underneath the bridge in 79. Mm-hmm. They were, what we didn't know is some people. Th- this um, is based on information you got during your sessions with the, with a, um, with a, not really a Ouija board because I can hear in the recording, which I have. Uh, you used a glass, I guess a glass on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. We had a whole selection of them. And the 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 board itself, um, like a with, shot glass uh, a or something drawing. that you would move around yeah, with your fingers. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, used to go to, we used to go to the car boots and uh, car boot sales and buy them up. You know, find the best one. Um, and and also sometimes they would fly off the table accidentally and things. So we we had stock of those. Um, yeah. So we, the tooth was the first thing to appear, and after that there were the swords. And when we got together, when Graham first came to that. To the house, and when we were staying there, you know, oh, Graham, yeah, okay, you know, because we'd seen him before, and Anne sort of knew him well enough, and uh, but you know, not intimately. Anne and Martin knew him well enough, and he came and he said, you know, are you the people that found the swords in, you know, in uh, where, where, oh, I was in Milton Keynes, and I said, no, no, we, we've got two other swords. He said, oh God, and his face, I mean, his face dropped because bear in mind when he comes to the Greenstone. And when he came out of the, the eye of fire, there was a huge amount of damage, mentally, physically, and everything. Everybody that came to the backlash from it. Oh, you mean from, from the group that ago. found the green stone and the other thing you're mentioning? Yeah, and the eye, eye of fire. Yeah, yeah. They, there was a thing. And Graham had suffered because of that. Um, 
and basically came in his face dropped and he thought wow and and when we did the board and we got the first airport one of the first things he said was look please can you keep this a secret because if it gets out there's going to be a lot of people want to be in on it and we thought yeah it's fine you know we kept that for a long time before anybody knew and um we the first airport was just you know, like I say, you remember your first, and it was lapis lazuli, and um, we got in contact with Addy, and we got round to saying, Who's you know, what's Addy? your name? And all that. Addy, yeah. that's what I was going to say. Addy was our contact on the Ouija board. She became our gatekeeper. She became somebody we knew as a, a real person. She had, she was funny, capricious, um, a great sense of mischief about her. You, what you'd expect from a twelve-year-old girl. Um, who was suddenly confront- confronted by these people that took an interest in her, you know. Um, she was very girly at times as well, very girly, um, very, you know, very fascinating because we could see bits of ourselves in her every now and again when we were doing the board and an, and an answer would come up and I'd say, I was just thinking of that. And somebody else said, yeah, I've had that too. So what you had to do was to get that out of your mind instead of, I just thought of that and it's come out through the board. Therefore, I made it happen. Forget all of that. The rapport develops and all of that stuff goes by the board. No pun. You just, <laughs> you, you lose yourself in the experience. You don't try to prove it to anybody or justify it. You follow it. You follow it wherever it leads and you believe in it. It's like with, you know, if you believe a spirit is real, then it will behave as if it's real. And, you know, if you think it's an archetype and it's all this, it will behave like that. And the thing I've learnt, the one thing I've learnt from Keel more than anybody is he said, when you get whatever your theory is, whatever your feelings are on something, the next six results you get will confirm it. And then it'll suddenly flip and it will give you something else. We had that. Well, I saw it happening with, with, with our group. I thought, it's going to do this for a little bit. It will give us exactly what we think Addy is. And it did. But then you get something you think, wow, you didn't expect that. You, you know, you just think, yeah, I've got this mapped out. Yeah, I know all about this. Um, then something else would happen where you think, I, we used, before this horrible program on, came on TV called The X Factor, we used to call it The X Factor because it was unknown. There would be some mystery component which gave Addy her own autonomy and her own identity and her own choice, choices in things, and definitely her own um, sense of direction. You know, you couldn't push it. If she didn't want to do something, she didn't do it, and that was it, you know. And then suddenly, suddenly, when, when you'd forgotten about this original thing, she would surprise you with it. Um, yeah, so we, we started doing the board, and, um, you know, we said, what do we call you? She's Addie, A-double-D-I-E, which made us laugh a lot. And um, Graham said, is that short for Madeline or something? And she said, yes, you know. And we, we had lots of laughs, you know. And we said to her one night, um, are you okay you know, being with us, you, you're quite agreeable. You don't think we annoy you too much. And she said, no, better than Gladys. And she said, what do you mean better than Gladys? And Gladys was somebody who lived in the house in the 20s that used to do seances. It used to pester her a lot. So, so you know, she, and there's things like, you know, things like Oh, so that you, you found out like later that. there was a Gladys that used to live in the house that you didn't know before. No, we never found her. But Andy said she existed, and that was good enough, you know. Oh, I see. There were lots of people. You know, it was one of these things, Greg, it's, it's, I know I've, I've been talking about this um, to you and Miguel, 
and I spoke to Susan about it recently, the James McLennan book, um, The Entity Letters. Now, he documents a huge period in Sorat's history where they were getting results for this, that, and the other. And he goes over the results, look at on hindsight, over donkey's years. Now, so many times in you have, you know, ufology, um, mediumship, so many times the information comes through, it seems clear, it seems definite, and it doesn't check out. Nothing checks out, or a very little bit of it. And you think, well, that bit was correct. You know, like half-remembered stories, half created myths and these things get handy a keel i mean even keel said there must be a stuck record somewhere because all the spiritualists all this ufo people they get the same sort of messages and he researched into things that went back 300 years these contactee type messages they are all pretty trite they don't impart much anything profound but to that person when they get it at that moment it can mean a huge amount. I don't understand it. I've no handle on this any more now than when we first did it. I have probably less of an idea now than I did then. And I think I feel better for it, to be honest. So what you're meaning is that um, the information you were getting was relevant to you guys, the member of your, your group, because he had uh, a certain amount of a personal uh, importance. Some of it was very, yeah, yeah. And you see, the thing is, she changed. Um, when we first knew Addie, she, she appeared, um, not physically, we, we'd really hoped that, you know. Um, we even had a, a, an airport of a stone with a, a big stone, translucent, with a, a yin and yang line through it, the stone of manifestation. And it, it asported, it was Graham's that wasn't, we were going to try and manifest it. And it disappeared. Um, I have some very strong feelings about that one. It was a beautiful stone. And it was also... Think, oh, no, go ahead, please. No, I was going to say, we, we were trying to manifest it. Um, and when we, when we started looking into all of this thing, all of the information she gave us, the histories of the people in the house, the, the, um, everything else, it didn't check out. But when we first knew her, we just treated her like a 12-year-old child. We, and some of it, some of the language she used was definitely rural Warwickshire, from that period. And all, all I can assume is that at some stage or other, there was the, the shell, the astral shell, or some resonant leftovers, remains, resonant energy of somebody who might have been there and died in that house at that age. And we built upon that by projecting onto it. You know, if you, if you, when does a spirit become self aware? I mean, I'm talking about with the Goetia or a spirit that you conjure. You, deal with these things and all of a sudden there's a moment when you think you're really dealing with something which is alive and sentient and intelligent and responsive not just a computer program like you know some magicians will tell you and that's what Addie did and she changed she suddenly became very intelligent very knowing suddenly capable of producing apports and uh, big apports and macro pk three three times in a night i mean you've seen the photographs you've seen the gemstones and things like that it rolled. It really rolled on for months and months. Well, why, we why don't you Corley give us – Yeah. The, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I uh, said when we left Corley Hall – Which is where we you were doing these. Of, yeah, very much so, yeah. And, um, we, you know, we, we moved because the people wanted to sell up and move away, which is fine. Um, Keith Miles was a um, playwright, author, and producer. You know, a lovely guy. 
and um, his wife was an Oxfordshire woman. You know, they were very well qualified, very good to us as, as tenants, but they wanted to sell up. So we moved somewhere else and we moved across the fields. Um, actually, there's another coincidence. Um, Corley means heron fields. So there's a connection with the heron again. This is a private joke between me and Greg. You get it. Um, so. We, we moved to this other place and we still had psychic phenomena. We still had airports, really nice airports as well. Nice psychic experiences. But the Addy component, the person we knew and felt and could almost touch as Addy had gone. And I feel she was still left at Corley Hall, but much bigger and, and, um, developed probably given more of, um, some sense of identity, her own identity because of the input that we given to her as well. Yeah, um, you said there was that first apport um, of a of a lapis lazuli stone that had silver inclusions in it, or something like that. But you said gold and silver. Yeah, and which I don't know if I don't know if that's unheard of, but it's rare anyway. Um, you said that uh, these apports used to basically be a answer to something that was going on, or something that just came up in somebody's mind at the time, and was. Um, and were you know designed just to I guess give you more of a connection with Addy or whatever that thing was. Um, in, in addition to any instructions you got about finding these swords. No, the swords we found on our own. Oh, okay, um, okay. I'm we, sorry. Before we contacted Addy, yeah, that was another like I say another thing that that was that started in. All right, I didn't know that there were uh, Flanberis and yeah, Flanberis, and it was to do with Dennis Emerus. We did the board there. We got in contact with these you know revival druid people and, and and whatever they led us they told us we would find swords we would find stones and things like that. they actually told us that months before we'd even lived together we'd found corley hall um yeah the the airport the first airport was almost a blueprint for what happened afterwards um you see we got the swords on the table and graham was there we were the first time we were thinking god this is doing okay you know and we'd said to uh, they basically alan martin had said Addy, can we have some swords? And she said, no, I can't give you swords, but I can give you a stone. And Anne said, God, that'd be really nice. Yeah, okay, go on, go on. And we had no idea, no expectations. It was just, you know, let's, let's play this game for the love of playing it. And, uh, and, uh, and they said, yeah, okay, you know. So she said, what color would you like it? And Anne had got this beautiful shawl, scarf thing around her neck and it was a gorgeous deep blue which lapis is and um and she said this color would be really great thanks you know and Addy said okay would you like some gold and silver in it and everybody said yeah you know sure you know and uh, and Anne said yeah that'd be you know totally fab thanks and <laughs> it went on so we we were you know they were, we were told to go to go and get the book which was we we had at that time we were using um we, we we got a small bookcase, um, which is crammed full of books, and we had the Druid Revival, uh, you know, the Druid Tarot, and uh, you know, a few other things. And some of them were oracles and stuff like that. Um, and we had a tarot pack, which hadn't been in the house before. It had just arrived that night for some reason, and she got it from home where she'd been living before. Something like that. The tarot hadn't been there in the previous sessions. And Addie said, go next door, get Bible. Um, get the book. So she said, now open. So Anne went through the pages, went pop like that. You know, look. And so when she said, look, she read it and it talked about the 
the, the blue waters of the Nile where, you know, the people of Israel sat and wept or something. So you've got the blue waters, you've got the color blue. Then he asked, asked us to do it again. The, the board at this time would start almost like building up energy. I've thought about this many, many, many times since, about the Ouija board being a portal, uh, a small vortex of energy, or a focal point for, for, for between small dimensions or the dimension adjacent to us, something like that. And the board was going, wee, 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 and it stopped, and it said, get book. And it went backwards and forwards. And then it talked about the fabulous gold and silver of Solomon. So you're starting to build up. Yeah, you've got your blue stone. That's what you want. Okay, it's that color. You've got your blue and silver. You know, your gold, gold and silver. Um, and people were starting to, you know, we were starting to think, this is interesting because none of us had seen this. We'd done the Ouija board. Nothing like this had ever happened. And it started building up with other synchronicities, um, a particular card from the tarot pack. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, too. Yeah, you know, it was all face value. It was the surface. It it wasn't connected to the Kabbalah. It wasn't connected to the deep esoteric meaning. It was all the face value of what that card had, because it had somebody wearing blue, almost identical to the blue that Anne had got. Now, we started, it went round and round and round and round, and really, it's and all of a sudden, the board stopped, and Addy said, here, and of course, we couldn't see anything on the tabletop, and the the, um, the 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 board we actually used was a technical drawing board with all the letters written out in felt tip, felt tip pen, and that was on a kitchen table, big farmhouse kitchen table, and and I said, "There's nothing here." I mean, do you mean it's in the dimension where you are? You know, trying to sort of bend it to make it fit. She said, "Jesus, you lot are slow tonight." You know, Jesus, you're slow. And she said, "I look under." I, went, I mean, they looked under the the, the uh, kitchen table, and there was this one almighty shriek because we all thought, "What has just happened?" You know, because they underneath the table, and I said, "Look, look!" She was almost shaking. Look, look, and you. You can't find the words when it happens. You cannot find the words, apart from a lot of swearing, which I, I won't include on your program because you'll never get syndicated if I do. Oh, um, yeah, um, that's what I'm aiming this, for. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> fuck that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Fuck it. We're just going, fuck, fuck, fuck. And do you know, she held up the, the cabochon, the lapis lazuli cabochon, and held it up to the scarf, and it was like, it was a match that you couldn't with the refractive index and everything was perfect match for that shawl. And she said, I only bought it this morning. I've looked at it for weeks and I thought I'll go in and buy it today. And Addie started firing up. She said, nothing happens by chance. And we had that played out so many times, so many times. And she would say, nothing happens by chance. And do you know, I, I don't think it does. And I don't think it's because it's being orchestrated by anybody or some sentient being out there who's, you know, playing. No, you're, just, you're, you're, you're tuning into it. Yeah, it's not like the Greek gods mucking around with your life, you know. Private parts to the gods are we, you know, messing about, you know, that bit in black adder. It's not like that. It's just a living organism. It's a living, breathing, sentient thing and you're part of it when we were doing the board that night what was going on in the the whole of the house which went back to 1300 what was going on in the in the the small village we were part of what was going on and you move out to the countryside to the country to the other countries and the whole globe how many times was that being repeated or some psychic event or some infringement upon our particular three-dimensional consensus reality how many times was that going on all over the world because it's a living breathing thing and it happens 
every second of the day, probably. Every second of the day, there's a UFO landed, there's a Sasquatch, there's a light in the sky. This is only the things we can see. How many, if you got an infrared camera and you were doing the Trevor, Trevor James Constable thing, looking for critters, mm. how many critters are there out there that we don't know about wandering around, spirits and all the other stuff like that? Yeah, who knows? So, I don't. <laughs> well, there was Thanks another. There was another um, uh, thing that had actually some significance for me after you showed me, which was a a set of cards, mm-hmm. Egyptian, not really tarot, really, but they were Egyptian um, divination cards. Was that mm. an apport? You said it was an apport. Uh, yeah. Could you, yeah. Could you describe what happened in that instance? Ah, oh, yeah. Okay. And um, I'll describe what happened to me after you showed me the card. Or yeah, the, uh, please do. Oh, yeah. Please, please do. Um, we, ah, yeah, okay. We'd, we'd seen airports appear under the table. We'd had a tin that dropped, which I happen to have with me. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't show your audience, but there's a tin with a locket in it and a map and two little biblical quotations about protecting the heart and so forth. And we, we'd heard airports appearing. We found them in obscure places when we were told to go and look, really funny places. And we'd always wanted to see one appear always said can we see one appearing and she said well you know well, I don't know. and just kept us on the edge thinking well you know it might happen i didn't know that nobody's ever seen an apple at that time i had no idea it just didn't happen i had no idea how how elusive this thing was and then she, she got us around the table she said you wanted to know you wanted to see an apple appear i said yeah and everybody went yeah this is going to be it you know and she said, get cards. So we got the tarot pack. And she said, Chaz, shuffle. So I started shuffling the cards. And we were going, yeah, 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 yeah. It's going to be cold tonight. Yeah, yeah. Get the fight. Yeah. She have some cup. She have a cup of tea in the minute. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. And it said, stop. And because they got the fingers on the glass. It says, now throw them in the air. And they all started laughing, you know. So I threw them in the air as much as I could. And they landed all over the floor and behind me, you know, certainly behind me. And she said, now pick them up. And of course, they just crease themselves, you know. I mean, she would do this to us. She didn't mind sending you up. And we didn't mind being sent up. And I picked the cards up and I thought, what the hell? Because it wasn't there in the tarot pack. Because I looked at every card I shuffled and it wasn't in there. But the, the card you've got, you see, that this is an interesting thing. Because before that had happened, I'd been talking about wave theory and harmonics. And I'd been talking about... Basically, look, using radio as a reference, you get harmonics, you get standing waves, and this is, has to do with energy, you know, string theory. And as, to the best of my ability, and we were all sitting there talking about it, and Graham interjected with a few things because he's pretty well up on physics. And um, and she, Addy had said, Chaz, talk, um, tell harmonies, tell about harmonies. So I went into this whole thing, you know, Tibetan tingsha and the right frequencies affecting chakras and things like that, you know. Stuff that had been done in Berkeley University and, and checked out. And um, that's when she said, do the cards and shuffle them. And that card was there. And underneath it said, silver tones produce clear harmonies. And do you know, Dick, just even to this day, that's my favorite Apport story. Um, oh, so you, the had the, you had the deck. It's just that that card oh, yeah. was never in it. That, no. That the, no, that's in the, in the, we had the, Rider weight tarot pack, which we used, and yeah. I shuffled them, threw them in the air, oh, and when they were all oh, over oh. the floor. 
Okay, so this was yeah, a completely like, different set. It wasn't it wasn't the, one of the cards that appeared in the set. No, so in the midst no, of a not. rider weight deck, you threw them all in the air and these other cards that had that had nothing to do with that deck appeared in the, in the pile card. of junk on the floor. No, just just that one card. Oh, okay. Silver Jones produced Kohami, which was also related to the talk I've given on harmonics and you know, and you know, frequencies. I think we are just a frequency. I think we, if you looked at us, as you can see, our pure energy, we would be like a, a um, probably look like the spiral arm of a of a galaxy or the bit in the middle or something. I think it's all fractal. I think we're just microcosm of the whole thing, and we resonate at a particular frequency. And um, you know, there was that sort of stuff where I was talking about that. Well, um, that also, card is a, a cartouche card, and it comes. It was done by Murray Hope. The cards we had, the three of them, were blank on the back side of them. The, the Murray Hope cartouche cards that were sold had a pattern on them. So you got so three yeah. cards eventually appeared. Yes. That's okay. Right. Were apported into the deck, and you threw them each time. Oh no, 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 no. Just that only time. one was apported into the deck. The others came. Um, the others came as we were doing the board. Into uh, yeah, I think it was about two o'clock in the morning or something. The Thoth. The Thoth card came. I forget what the what triggered that one. Um, the oh, I think it was the, the one which said the, the Sirius thing was interesting because we know we were told it was something to do with contact with Sirius and um, and the dog and because he was dog barking outside and it was all surface value stuff. I don't think it was anything to do with. I mean, I don't know. I mean, other things have happened subsequently, like with the skull experiment and with the. Um, um, who were the people in Chester? The one that had the, the the vertical plane people came. Webster's group, you know, they had odd things. And other people have had this thing where people from the future suddenly stop people doing psychic work, which might disrupt timelines and things. And I think I'm I'm beginning to wonder if there's something in that. Alexander McRae, who does EVP, had a very similar thing where stuff was deleted off his computer, and um, he was told not to mess around with it because he's he's buggering up timelines. And I think there's a strong possibility. Of that happening with the serious thing, we we had the card, we had an apple which is very similar to one of the features on it, which was the obelisk, which I told you about the, oh, yeah. um, I the blue I, obelisk. I'm looking at the cards now, and the the two the toth thoughts whatever and serious look new, and I guess they were come yeah. from a store bought deck. But the bast bast <laughs> card with know. the with the uh, silver notes produce clear harmonies is a different color, and that's the one you said doesn't have the ba- any anything printed on the back, like it was a printer's proof. None or of them, none, none of them have anything on the back. Those oh. three cards don't have anything on the back, and oh, okay. the obelisk came uh, in the the obelisk came about the same time as the the um, the serious thing, and when it said um, it says thrice question the cosmic clock. Now we it was getting very late, and the board. Bearing in mind, all this was done in, in, we had the lights on. We didn't do it in darkness. And, you know, this is the first time that it said, can you lower the lights? So we put some lamps on instead of bright lights, you know, the kitchen lights and stuff. And all of a sudden it said, um, I mean, you could, you could see, you could see everybody was clear. You know, we got, we, it was just very slow and it was very tedious. It was getting very late. And Anne said, uh, we'll give it till one o'clock and then we'll knock it on the head. It was going round and round. And she said, what time is it now? You know, 20 to 2 or 20 to 1 or whatever it was. And uh, three times Anne said, what time is it? And it was 1 o'clock. And bang on 1 o'clock. And we said, we're going to give it to 1 o'clock and then we're going to finish. That card appeared. Thrice questioned the cosmic clock. And 
when we had the cards through and it said, um, and it's, she said to us, you know, you've got to visualize this to do with trans-dimensional contact. This is to do with, I mean, this goes from being a 12-year-old girl in Victorian times with, oh, ah, miss, you know, good to see you, good morrow, good my lord, and all that, to suddenly talking about trans-dimensional, she groaned, something else had grown with it. And we lost contact in a way. We lost the heart and soul of it. It became something like dealing with um, almost like dealing with, say, um, an Enochian angel, something big, this this building block of um, uh, of, of energy, really. And she, she said, I'll give you something. You see the bottom of the, um, the little gold bar at the bottom? You need to visualize on that, and that will help the open up the doors to the trans-dimensional thing. I will help you. And all of a sudden, the board started going round and round. There was this one almighty clunk. And we looked and thought, what the bloody hell? Because we thought... You know, we thought we'd done for the night, really. And um, the big agate thing was there. The big, um, and I think that should be in a picture next to one of the cards, Greg. It's quite substantial. It made a noise when it fell. I mean, I've got a list of all the airports. I could probably tell you when they arrived, really. Um, yeah, but I mean, that was that was just it was just bizarre, really. And we were told after that we're getting into. We're probably getting at the tail end of the Corley Hall stuff. And um, it told us really, it, it basically said no more. This is outside of my remit. It was really technical, technical language. This is outside of my remit. I cannot help you anymore. My work here is done basically. When we tried to contact whatever was going on, we tried to contact Addy. We, it kept repeating whatever we'd said. Is Addy there? Can we have some contact, please? It would go on the board and it said, is Addy there? Can we have some contact? And it did it over and over and over again to the, we got to the point where we, there was no point in doing it. We couldn't break through that. It mm. wouldn't answer any of our questions. And it just basically said, we're stopping you. And we were all pretty tired by then. We, in, you know, Graham was quite ill at that time. Um, we all got basically, I got a new job and Andrew got a new job and, um, Anna Martin weren't getting on that well. So it almost came to a natural end, really. We were still doing stuff with Graham. You know, Graham would come down to where we lived at Corley Hall, um, at Corley Ash after that. And we used to do stuff down there. We had some brilliant apports out of that. Really good, just with the three of us. You know, really nice apports and the weird, strange circumstances, you know. Um, well, the, the card you ne- said. Never like- Go ahead. Sorry, never like Addy. It was never like Addy again, you know. Yeah, that was just, it seemed was, like was the signal period. was coming through very strong at that point. Yeah, um, it was like the first days of a band when you suddenly realize you've got something. <laughs> yeah. That, re- that re- re- reflexive self-consciousness, you know. I remember sitting there the first time an apple appeared, and we all looked at each other, and there was this, I know, and I know that I know. And you can't go back. You can't undo it. You can't go into denial. You can't explain it away. And it changes you from that moment. It's an initiation into something much bigger. Yeah. Uh, the um, There's the dog, just as we were talking about uh, the serious yeah. card. <laughs> uh, the card yeah. you sent me, the first one, the ba- Bast, Bast card with the uh, the instrument on it, I found out that it's yeah. called a sistrum. I did not know what a sistrum was. It's an ancient Egyptian uh, instrument. And... About, I think, a month or two before I had any contact with you, my wife bought tickets to the King Tut exhibit in Los Angeles here. I talked to you after that. You told me about this card and the Sistrum. I went to the exhibit, and basically the first room I walked into, the first case I went up to had a Sistrum in it from King Tut's tomb. And I sent you a picture of it. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. So within a couple know, of weeks s- after meeting you, I've, I actually saw mm. this thing where you, I think it's one of the only ones that came out of you know ancient Egypt because everything was looted. But this one had survived. And it, it looks like that. It's basically a, a wand with a, uh, a round tennis racket-looking thing above it and these little metal discs on it. And they would shake these during um, rituals and during funerals and things like that to make, to make noise. It basically just sounded like a rattle, a metal rattle. Um, but, yeah, it said silver it notes was, produced it was clear old harmonies well. at the bottom. Yeah, it was very old as well, the one you saw, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was like, 4, it was like three or 4,000 years old. Whatever King Tut's, yeah. Whenever King Tut reigned, I mean, that's, the, that's how old the thing was. Uh, everything in the, you know the tomb was very well preserved, I'm, including this Sistrum thing, which is synchronistically appeared, a, a, an actual real-life version of it appeared in my life uh, very soon after talking to you about it. Do you know, I, I find this, I love this, because do you know, the, the, when you sent me that picture, I sat there and I was, I was really quite, I don't say emotional, but it really put a lump to my throat, because I've never seen a real one. I've never seen a proper, I've never, certainly never seen that one, ever, you know. I've only, I, I knew the, I've seen reproductions, um, but not, not, not even good ones, you know, like dr- line drawings of how they were made and archaeological finds, but I've never seen a real one from that period. And, and it was beautifully preserved. Yeah, I was I, staggered because yeah. wood, wood doesn't take that much to, to reduce it to dust, really, you know. Yeah, it was It was, it was really, amazing. really quite impressed. I, I had an emotional but reaction, did, too, from seeing it. Just because I it, thought that it was significant that I saw a real one after you first showed. Somebody I just is, met showed me a picture of one. Yeah, but it is significant. You know, I mean, I think I'll explain to you, you know, the, the synchronicities really rocked me and I was and uh, I told you I was talking to Susan the other night and we got on to um synchronicities and they they mean everything and yet they seem to mean nothing you know I when I was talking about my friends that we did the Ouija board with at school and we had the UFO stuff on they I mean they had their own experiences they went camping um those two and their, their younger brother and they went up into the hills they saw lights so close to their campsite they they were able to get their torch and flash at these lights and the lights flash back at them and you know that when I, I after all of those years like so long really so long since we did all of that stuff i hadn't seen them very often i used to see them when i was busking in shrewsbury sometimes and you know they, they'd appear every few years and we'd catch up and on all that i martin willis sent me um a form saying, I, your UFO report interested me. You know, if you want to put it online, please do so. And, um, basically, you know, I, it was about a triangular UFO because somebody categorically said the first one appeared in 76 or something. It was, you know, it was one of these dogmatic statements. And I wrote mm-hmm. to him saying, no, that's not true. I said, if you include the psychic component, they were seen before then. This is my experience. And when Martin wrote to me that morning, saying, here's my website, if you want to put the sighting up, you're welcome. In Within half an hour of him, you know, this email appearing, um, I got a, a message on my phone. My phone's always in the window because there's no, no good signal here, and it was a text message, and I didn't know who it was from, and I wrote back saying, who is this, please? And he said, it's John, John Clark. You know, it's, and this was the, one of the guys that we did all this stuff with in school days. Now, I'd not seen him for probably... At least 10 years. And his number appeared on my phone, total by accident, totally, you know, sent it to the wrong person. But he was that person who was with me when all that stuff happened in school. 
synchronicities can go on for an awful long time. And I've listened to synchronicities. I've acted and I've responded to them. I've really come unstuck because I thought they had more, much more, certainly with women, I thought they had much more meaning than they did. You know, I've met people and thought, wow, this is a huge synchronicity. This must be some cosmic significance in meeting this person. And there isn't, actually. It's just <laughs> a, it's just a <laughs> synchronicity. You know? Nobody's hit me yet, but um, what's interesting for me in those circumstances is two or three people I met under those circumstances where you suddenly come to cut somebody and they'll look and they say, Do you know, I don't know what I'm doing here today. I wasn't going to come here. I should be at home doing this. I'm doing that. But I had a real urgent call to come here today. And I've met you and we've swapped information and stories and never phone numbers or anything like that, but they've gone away. And so they had the same synchrony, you know, the nudge from a synchronicity to be in, and I'm talking about like a little wooden bridge next to the castle in Clun when they shouldn't even be there. And I shouldn't have been there, but, you suddenly appear standing next to each other on that bridge, watching the river flow. And I know it's all a metaphor and this, that, and the other, but they were acting on that same hunch. It's, you know, you push it here, the membrane here, and it responds somewhere else. You know, it's like a big bouncy castle, probably. <laughs> <laughs> the universe is a bouncy castle. There you go. That's my thought for today. You had... Um... No, ask me another question. Yeah. Ask me another question. When we were talking the other day, I, you said something I thought was kind of fascinating because there's this huge thing about faking in um, mm. in parapsychology and all that. And, and somebody says, well, if somebody fakes, then that means that you can never trust them again, which from their point of view makes perfect sense. But you said something about when you start faking things, if nothing's – it's like a fake it till you make it. You start faking things and that seems to jumpstart some sort of uh, – Anything that might happen, you, you might be able to jumpstart it by goosing it in, way, in a way. Which, you know, if, if there's any skeptical people listening, they're probably tearing their hair out right now. But I found that a fascinating thing, the uh, <laughs> issue that you brought, that you are, brought up. Th th yeah. They're either going to tear their hair out or they've seen it in action. Um, one of the things in the McClellan book, the Entity Letters, you know, he talks about um, a guy called Tom Richards who was seen slightly tipping the table and slightly, you know, you know, what happens is in those circumstances, and I have I have seen it happen actually, where you just go, come on, what would it, what would it feel like if this thing was moving? And you push it, and you think, wow, that's quite a bit of effort actually. It's, you know, the table we had was a kitchen farmhouse kitchen table. We had that off the ground. We 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 had that off the ground so you could put books underneath it. And we didn't expect it. It started happening one day, and it surprised the hell out of me because we hadn't we we didn't we weren't into that, you know, and yet. It happened. It, you know, it started rising and it was wobbling around the place. And we put, we, we actually had video film of this thing. Um, and what happened with, with, what happens with the um, faking it till you make it is a modern thing. But you, what I, you I was do just is saying that because it's a good phrase. Sorry. It is. It's a modern phrase, which, which I, I don't say it's dismissive, but. It means it's in a slightly different context. If you, if you imagine sitting around a table and you say you've got a card table or you've got the board and um, there's a slight inhibition. If you don't know people very well or you've never done it before, there's a sense of slight inhibition. Even if you've seen stuff happen to other people, and this is somebody you always feel somebody's looking at you. If you get an answer in your head to something, you, you ask a question and the board gives you an answer and you thought, I just thought of that. 
everybody around that Ouija board will have thought exactly the same. They would have had exactly the same experience. And you start, did I, you know, am I influencing this? Am I doubting it? Because you always expect it to be a totally outside influence with um, total autonomy and um, being self-contained. And it's suddenly come to visit you. It takes a while before you suddenly realize you might have a lot of input into what's there. And it's, we always counted Addy as a sixth member of the group. Mm. And, mm-hmm. With the with the sort of making it happen thing, when you start just budging it a little bit, you suddenly drop your guard because you think you you relax into it. You think, okay, that's what it's going to subconsciously think. That's what it's going to feel like if it was doing it on its own, and you almost give yourself permission to to make it happen, to let it happen. And I think letting it happen is more than making it happen. Yes. You have to have a certain receptivity. Um, if you're a control freak, I mean, I've got a friend of mine who's a magician who would never touch the Ouija board. Nor, and I said, God, let's do the board. This is a guy that was used to doing, you know, conjuration and evocation and things. But he wanted to put up the pentagrams, wanted to do the four quarters and all that. It's not about that. You know, it's not about that at all. You sit there and you, like Jeff Ritzman might say, you say, come on, let. You do a let, which is to let it happen. Whatever's going to happen, let it happen. And to stand there and face it, to man up to it, because it might be extremely good, but you don't know. It might be extremely dodgy. But it will reflect some aspect of yourself. How well do you like yourself? You go around the Ouija board with people that don't really like themselves and don't like each other. It's, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not good. Or people are trying to prove something. Come on, let's prove there's life after death. Let's prove that there's, there's um, a poltergeist here. Let's prove, you know. We had no such agenda in what we did. We weren't going to prove to the SPR. We didn't. We had one. At one stage in a slightly different setting, we had a guy came around from Warwick University who was a parapsychologist and he was, you know, a big man. He, he, was, he just wanted letters after his name. So instead of doing something like media studies, which wasn't available, or social science or pottery, I mean, this guy just wanted letters after his name and parapsychology was one of the things. Do you know, I think he was actually really shit scared of anything happening because when we started doing the board and laughing and talking about all these experiences, he didn't believe them. Because why should he? He's there to prove that things don't exist subconsciously. Whatever he says about being open, his agenda is to prove things don't exist. That, that's how he will make his name, write his thesis, and get his PhD. And all of those people are like it. Uh, they don't call themselves debunkers because they think they're respectable, but they're not. And with the whole faking it thing, you just do it a little bit, and the other stuff flows through. You have to make space for stuff to happen. And... It works, really, it works. But you've got to have people that have a certain amount of rapport, that do trust each other. And you think, okay, let's, let's fake it a little bit. Let's, you know, push it. In. Okay. If you, you know, the, the other people know that, nobody's going to punish you for it. Nobody's going to say you deceived them. Nobody's going to say, um, you know, you had a secret agenda because you know it's going to make the bigger thing happen. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like um, I don't know if that explains it very well, Greg. I no, I know it explains it fine. And it's, it's a very personal uh, view of how how that would work. And you know, my idea is that if you if you come in with a blank slate, um, or even um, uh, at, uh, what's the word? When I was went on a ghost hunt once, and a lot of stuff happened. My attitude was open minded anticipation. You know, it wasn't. Yeah, I yeah, didn't. I yeah. said, whatever happens, happens. If it doesn't, so what? Um, if it does, then I will let my critical mind j- mess with it afterwards. But while it's happening, I'm not going to sit there and go, "This must be so and so." I'm just going to let it happen. 
And that's, and my mindset caused, uh, it caused me to have experiences I'd never had before. And I'd been in that mindset yeah. before when I was doing stuff like that on, on another ghost hunt and nothing happened at all whatsoever. But the second time we got like tons of stuff, which was very strange to me. Not strange. I, I was almost expected it. I think Miguel wanted to ask you something too. Also, I have that recording of one of the, the the apports coming through. I think it's the photograph, and so I wanted to play that yes. near, near the end here and have you set it up. I'll only play a couple minutes of it because it's about seven minutes long. But I'll play the part with you know with with some of the um, you could hear the uh, the the glass going around with all your hands on it. And you oh, can hear your yeah, reaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that I thought that was a good piece of audio. <clears throat> yeah, probably post um, Charles' uh, email explaining about the particulars of it. You know, in in the show notes or something. In, on the Rally Mysterioso website. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I can give a very brief introduction. There was five people around there, and Ange had done the drawing, and... Uh, oh, okay. We'd all did, gone did next you want to ask that, If you want. Did you want to ask the... What would you... I think Miguel Sorry. wanted to ask a question about um, psychic questing in general. Yeah, oh, I because... Going yeah, to sleep. We, we can go <laughs> we over, that's fine, the, by a little bit. We knew from the start that we wouldn't be able to cover, you know, all, all of it in just one show. Uh, but so... To wrap this one up, maybe a question that is on the minds of, of many listeners to this is, uh, would you recommend people to, to try out this psychic questing thing on, on, on their own? Are there any risks of doing it? And, and if they're willing to, to, to face the risk, what should they do? You know, is there a website or is there is there a, is, is there a place where people who are still doing this uh, gather around? I would recommend. I would heartily recommend reading Avalonian Aeon by Paul Weston. W e s t o n. It's a wonderful book because there's lots of things that happen. Because you see, he didn't just do the Seven Swords, and he, you know, uh, he. He did lots of stuff. He was involved with the Black Alchemist um, thing that Andy was doing. And what you get is with the books, okay, you've got the Greenstone Eye of Fire. They get it to be very pricey now. And the copies you can get off eBay and stuff, well, they're pretty tatty. Um, West, Paul Weston stuff, he was there. And he's got a, a really brilliant memory for things that happened and he writes really well like i say now he's got lots of questing stuff in there which wasn't it was to do with his own questing stuff which was to do with the glastonbury zodiac and things like that which is you know there's lots of stuff it's not the thing is actually greg you mentioned this uh, recently psychic questing being an english phenomena yeah now, i what i find interesting um page 138 of the um entity letters by mclennan he talks about People following the information from spirits and acting on it and uh, so forth. And there's a guy called Bill who'd been in, in contact with um, some spirits. And they basically said that Merlin was buried under a hill in England. And he was actually a, a time traveler from the 25th century. So if they went and did um, if they went and did some rituals at this particular hill, Baden Hill, I think it was, um, then they could release him from this thing. He was, he was trapped there. So he gave up what he was doing in, in America and he went to England and they had amazing physical phenomena, apparently, but it all turned dodgy because you, you, this is a weird thing. I, I've known people that have followed up the most obscure quests. Every person 
that was in, involved with the Seven Swords group, the close people, Paul Weston and uh, all the other people like that, you know, um, Lisa and Carl, John and Horrigan, all these people that were very close to the core, um, Boyd, um, you know, I could I could go this, this uh, they all had their own thing. I mean, Caroline Roy, her and Steve, her husband Steve at the time, they had a, a, a shaman who came from America and they stayed at her place and she was doing some drumming outside, you know, whatever, it went on for a bit. And they had a crystal, apples in backyard. And it, they thought, wow, what a really wacky shape, you know, quite a big chunky bit of crystal. The next time she went out into the backyard and she was doing stuff, the other half of that crystal came and it was a perfect match. So they came together to form a particular, I think it was an egg or something. You know, everybody had it. There's so much going on. Um, how to deliberately get into questing, I would read the books first to get a flavor of it, because it can be done in America. It can be done anywhere, I believe. I wonder about the distances involved. We decided we would not do the old greenstones stuff. We would not go around the countryside. We would not go from one end of the country to the other like the old group did. I know why they did it. And, and, and when we, we did loads of that with the Seven Swords, with Andy, we would meet up all over the place. But we, we didn't really want to get into it. A, it's very tiring. We have regular jobs. And... There's only so much of it you can do. And sometimes you don't get a result every time. So we made our flat the complete universe, which we would work in. And you can do that. Um, you will get lots of experiences and things like that. But there's something about going into the landscape. If you go to where the sacred sites are in your country and your area, spend time there and meditate quietly. And as Jeff Richmond would say, I mean, he, it would be great to get him in on another one of these. I would love that. You know, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and and maybe Susan as well, because she was telling me about things that had happened to her sac- sacred sites, yeah, places Saint out Claire. in the countryside. Yeah, yeah, d- d- yeah. And to, to listen to the spirits there, to listen to the spirits of nature, to res- they are so strong. You know, they are still there, and they like to be talked to. They like to be asked questions. They like to, a bit of courtesy. And like you know, Josh would say, put a bit of food out for them. You know, give them yeah, a libation. Like you're moving um, towards fairy faith stuff here. Oh, and th- very that much. stuff is that stuff is present very in all much. cultures. It's just that he it was strongest, I guess, that he could tell with the you know, the original uh, Celtic countries. Um, but the, the, yes. he did point out that it's in all cultures, at least yeah, ancient ones. Very yeah. much. So maybe they're being ignored, yeah. and they they would like 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 some attention at this point because everybody is drawn away from that by being. Uh, um, involved in a um, in a scientific worldview or a, a rational worldview in this. There's a whole history of this before the 20th century, before the 19th century, Enlightenment and all that, that uh, that is um, still sitting there. Um, uh, what's the word? Embryonic or whatever, waiting to come back out. Mm-hmm. Latent. Yeah. Yeah, you see, I, I, I find it, you know, I find it interesting because whatever aspect of this stuff, and I, in a way, this probably sounds, this isn't me, blowing my, my trumpet or trying to sound Mr. Big about this because there are people out of experience more than me. But what I feel almost like a privilege for, really, it's like a curse and a blessing. I have seen everything from from UFOs that basically called me out to come and see them, even up until recently, you know, get this huge pull to go outside. And I, I think I explained this thing was there where I'd seen it a few years before, and it was in exactly the same spot, huge, you know, big... Thing. And I thought I don't, I don't, I can't be bothered with that anymore. You know, I've seen the psychic stuff, the paranormal stuff. I've, I've only ever seen one black dog, no. and that. Oh, the one. I the never cemetery? want to see that again. Yes, yeah, yeah. Ponfadica um, oh. uh, in Kiliog Valley. I never want to see that again. That was just. And why do these things have red eyes? Why do these 
What? So, you know, step back a bit. Why would something need red eyes? Why? To freak you Only out. Only to put the shits. Yes, exactly. To put the shits up, people. You know, um, I've been poetic about say. it. Shakespeare would have said it like that. Yes. <laughs> you know. Uh, um, we have one yeah. other th- uh, thing I wanted to ask about, and th- you have mm-hmm. a this. We have this recording you sent me of one of the apports appearing and the group seeing the apport yeah. happen. So could you? It, I think it's for the photograph. It was, it was the apport of, of Addy. Okay, the, um, the, we we wanted to know what Addy looked like, and we pestered her a few times. Can't tell us what he looked like. What do you look like? You know what? And she said. Really, at some small stage, incidentally, she said, I look like Angela. We thought, okay. Uh, and at that time, Angela had really long braids. She's still got them now, you know, even in, um, in the 60s. And uh, Angela had a dream, a recurring dream, of seeing a girl, and she'd drawn this picture, and because she's really good at art, in particular line drawings. And she had an easel in the corner of the room, because um, we had a huge bed sit. We did all the seance stuff in the kitchen, a uh, big farmhouse kitchen, uh, flag, you know, s- stone floor and everything. They were all in there doing the board. And Angie's drawing was up on the right-hand side of an easel, and uh, it was a girl. And I'd not really noticed her. I'd not taken much notice, um, shame to say, really. And somebody else had had a dream that they were talking to Addy. Well, you expect this sort of thing, you know, it gets into the subconscious, but there was something going on. Definitely. We'd all had a dream of, of speaking to this woman who was in the house. And Andy had said, okay, you wanted to know what I look like. Top right, go next door. So we all shuffled next door and had a look and said, top right. Oh yeah. It's on the easel. Oh yeah. yeah, Very good. All shuffled back in, got around the board and you wanted to know what I look like. And the board started going round and round. This is really in impre- you know, praises of it. They started going round and round and round, screech, 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 whatever. And yeah, top you, right. You can, you can hear it going around in the recording, the, the glass. <laughs> yeah. no, no, I love that sound. That sound will go to me to my grave. You it know. sounds like a bell, um, bell almost. Yeah, it was It was a very resonant glass and board that was. Before the board, the board actually wore, wore out eventually because it had it was used so many times. Um, it's, it's held as a relic at the moment. Um so we, it was going round and round, and then you wanted to know what I look like, top right. And and, and it said, look under. And then you go hear it. You'll hear Anne's going, wow, and me making stupid noises. And you can hear Graham saying, is, is, is that what you look like, you know, where my thumb is? And Anne, Angela's sister, actually said, it looks exactly like you when you were that. And, she said, and Anne said, I've got pictures. And there was this little girl with a bow, top right. And it's wonderful because the photograph is singed. It's a typical apport. If you look at any, if you ever read The Strangers by Matthew Manning, that is a gorgeous book if you want to talk about physical phenomena. And he, uh, he had apports, which were singed at the edges, you know, photographs. Also with Ken Webster, people knocked the vertical plane and they should be very careful about doing so. Um, lots of things happened in that exactly like they've happened to a thousand other people. You know, there's a pattern for all of this stuff. And yeah, you hear the photograph appearing and it was wonderful. It was the it was wonderful, and I've never found out where the school was that she was taken. It's a school photograph, and uh, probably the late eighteen hundreds, I should think. Mm-hmm. So there you go, you you've got that. No, no, okay. this is the first time it's been aired, by the way. Okay, uh, I'll play this and I'll turn down my microphone so you guys can hear it. It doesn't have a, like a double, a double um, mm-hmm. recording here. Let me, let me start it. Um, this is about two minutes before the end of the recording, where most of this stuff happens. Uh, so here we go.
That's the thing going around. Get on board. L O O K. Where are we looking, Eddie? The usual. You. Jeez, Mac! Top right is me. Oh, it's <laughs> down! Oh my god, it's just like I'm used to look. Let's have a look. Ooh, oh, it's Jeez! Wow! Is it used to look like that? That could have been me, Strew! Oh! I'll bring you some pictures of me. Oh! <laughs> How do that? Brilliant! Oh, what can you say? No, I'll tell you what. If it's players, how I'm, did he do it? I, I've seen pictures of you as well. So you're right. Good. Let's I'm check it. Brilliant! That's brilliant. It's all right. I've got a few more tricks. Here. Addy, Addy, <laughs> can we check it? Yeah. Can we check it? Is it is that particular person, the very one on the right? You know, just to make sure. Is the one that I'm my thumb over there? Is that you, Addy? Oh, Addy, this is terrific. W E E All right, that's yeah, take five. T5, and we go for the chocolate biscuits and a cup of tea. <laughs> oh, we, we need to point out that this is a, a cleaned up version of the, uh, of the audio recording that, uh, that Charles cleaned up using uh, GarageBand, I, I think it was. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a Yamaha cassette recorder, and then All it right. went into Audacity. So yeah, it's basically okay. gone in just to, yeah. Oh, yeah, only just to clarify, you know, because maybe some people will say, oh, well, how come it looks, it sounds so clear, you know, and so, you know, and so clear. Well, I actually messed with it, too. I, I turned up some of the parts where people were speaking that were lower than other parts where people were speaking and sort of evened it out. Um, and also it's, so it's you could very... hear the glass going around, too. I, I upped that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. You see, the thing is, in all fairness, the original cassette recording isn't that bad. You know, when you consider that was 1989 and, um, you know, it's, it, those cassettes have not been played that often, but they do wow and flutter a little bit. It's a good cassette deck. I was very pleased with it. And I got it specifically so I could um, take some of the old recordings and, and process them again. So it hasn't had much done to it other than um, noise reduction, really, for the wow and flutter. Uh, yeah. But I, I, I love that recording. And if, I, if I'm allowed to do... I, I know this is, pl please beat me up on another day, but I'd just love to do a, a quick shout out to people who have been very kind in all please of this. Please do. And this, it's the, mm -hmm. I, I'd like to thank Derek for introducing me to Ange and then introducing us to Andy Collins. That's down to Derek. He was, he calls himself a cosmic gopher because he's always doing this stuff. He's the most <laughs> unassuming, most, you know, the biggest, the most modest person you'd ever want to meet for that, considering the talent he has. Um, it's all of the people like Alan Martin and Graham, Andy Collins for all the stuff with the Seven Swords. He invited us in and he made us feel so welcome. And the group, you know, that, that we were part of all of that. And you know who you are. And Paul Weston as well, because he's basically one of the few people that really understands. You know, he really does. And he's a lovely man. You know, I owe him a lot. And also, none of it would have happened if, if Ange hadn't been there. And... um I, 
I owe her everything, really. You know, she's she's been the best friend I could ever want in all of these years. You know, really, and she we went through so much stuff together. Really funny stuff, the psychic stuff, and you know everything, all the cats we ever had, and to you too. You know, I mean, I've got to be honest. Okay, I wrote up to Paracast and things like that. But you were the only ones when I used to listen to, you, you know, you two and, and, and different things that you've done on other people's shows. The only people I thought real kindred spirit, I need to talk to you people. I need to engage it, you know, because you get it. You would understand. And I have loved the conversations and the Skype calls we've had and cherished them in ways you probably think are stupid, probably sentimental, you know, but <laughs> it's, it's made me think and re- review everything that I've ever done. I, I could, you know, thank you for both for that. And, and Susan, you know, um, the stuff you did with her. I used to sit there and think, I've got to talk to her. I've got to talk to her about this or that and the other, you know, finally getting the chance to. If it doesn't happen again, well, you know, it, it's, it's happened. And it fired me up with more things to think about and clarify ideas. And, uh, and, and I, you know, my head buzzes like a hive some days. <laughs> Not every day, because I do other things. You know, I play guitar and I do woodwork, which I love. That's my greatest, you know, going up the woods and things, you know. But there's odd moments when I get an insight and I have to write it down. And your reporting book on your desk has brought that to me. I now write stuff down, Greg. Thank you. And Miguel, you were the one that made it happen. You were the cosmic matchmaker, dude. <laughs> Yeah, that's why we yeah. had to have him on the show. I didn't introduce Miguel at the beginning. I just had him start talking. I introduced Charles after a fashion, but the uh, yeah, M- Miguel, I didn't say anything about. So sorry about that. But anybody listening to this show knows who Miguel <laughs> okay, is. Okay, we so. have to record everything again. Okay, we're gonna start yeah, over. Yeah. We're gonna have to start over. Yeah. Which reminds me, yeah. um, we didn't really get into a lot, uh, all of the meat of this. So we will at some time again. Also, I'd like to hear what uh, when people hear this show, uh, what they think questions they might have and we'll throw them in the next one so thank you so much uh charles for your time and no, and your experience you. and your uh, sharing this uh part of your life with us which is uh i find really fascinating and it, it it speaks to so many of the things that we've talked about in this show so thank you no thank you honest both of you is that is it's been a real blast for me and it's a thank you to uh, everybody that was part of it it just didn't happen to me there was a lot of people involved with this it wasn't just my story yeah, but you were the one that reached out and and, and spoke. And and thanks, Miguel, for um, one uh, finding, noticing, and putting uh, uh, what Charles' story was and putting us in touch. Thanks so much. Yeah, well, Miguel. My pleasure. You know, I'm, I'm I'm only glad that that we are being helpful. You know, for something that seems to be working. You know, uh, out of our control. You know, the circumstances surrounding how we managed to get together. And I think it's we are uh, performing uh, a service by trying to bring light to, to to these stories, these phenomena that are probably uh, not uh, uh, being heard outside of England. You know, and maybe even in England, you know, there are there are not there are not a lot of people who have heard of all these things that were being done in the 1970s and the 80s. And, and that to me are, are fascinating because I find a lot of correlations with the things and the ideas that we are trying to push now uh, in the, in the UFO uh, research community, you know, and, and if by like taking a, a few steps backwards into what people like Charles and, and Graham and Andy were doing will help us to move forward 
well, you know, that, that, that will, no one will be uh, more glad than yeah. I will. Yeah, it, to me, it's uh, as you're saying, as both of you are saying these things, what, it's, what it is to me is like one more piece of a giant puzzle. And exactly. we've attempted to drop one more piece in that puzzle. And some may, people may see where it fit. Some people, everybody has their own puzzle. So it may fit some people's puzzles. It may not fit others. But I think the ones that fit, it, it should help. And also, like uh, Miguel said, the, the research community at large, I think, is at its peril, ignores these things, even though they're, even though they're not sanctioned, <laughs> officially sanctioned. <laughs> yeah. None of this is officially yeah, yeah. sanctioned, so we're free to yeah. speculate, and that's what I enjoy. And uh, Charles wanted Robin Hitchcock, the ghost in you, so I've got that queued up. Um, yeah. I will thank you both once again, and we will continue this at some uh, future date. So thanks again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Gentlemen, I bid you good night from the Shire. All right. <laughs> Charles is in near the border of Wales, about halfway mm-hmm. to Liverpool. What's the name of the community, or do you want to say? Mike, where, where, where I live, it's in South Shropshire. It's on the Welsh border, and um, it's near to a place called Bishop's Castle. Oh, okay. It's, it's, there's Offers Dyke is really nearby that the Saxons put up to keep the Welsh out. Okay. This yeah. place was like the Gaza Strip in the med- medieval times. Yeah, it's, it's 10.15 yeah. there in, in, your, in your neck of the woods, so thanks for staying up. 10, 10, no, thank you. All right. Uh, here's uh, Robin Hitchcock with uh, uh, Ghost in You, which Charles says is one of his favorites. So here we go. One, two, three, four. Of 